Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Good morning, everyone. We are glad you're with us. <laughs> it came fast. Let's get started with yeah. five things to know for this Tuesday, April the 11th. Louisville this morning, mourning the lives of five people murdered in a mass shooting at a bank. Police say the gunman used to be an employee there. The Tennessee Three, closer to being made whole. State Representative Justin Jones officially reinstated after being expelled last week. His colleague Justin Pearson faces a vote tomorrow to get his job back. Federal appeals court weighing a decision on a widely used abortion pill. The DOJ has asked the court to stop a Texas judge's ruling that would suspend the use of mifepristone. Also, President Biden departing for Northern Ireland this morning. He is going to be there to mark 25 years since the Good Friday Accords ended years of violence. And say hello to Mayor Taylor Swift. The city of Tampa has now given the singer the honorary title and a key to the city ahead of her concert there this week. Seen in this morning starts right now. Another day, another mass shooting oh in America. It just broke right after we got off the air That's yesterday. Right. And it's just, it's one of those moments where you're just waiting to see, you know, what's next, what are the details. Yeah. But then next? near it, another shooting. That's right. In the same city. That's right. Around it's, the same time. Around the yeah. same time. It's just nuts and something has to be, we say it every time. But let's hope this time. It was just There's hoping an and hoping and hoping. But we'll, we'll see. We'll talk to Senator Chris Murphy later in the show, who keeps reintroducing this universal background check bill. Keeps trying, keeps trying, keeps trying. Um, and look, one of the, I mean, one of the victims, 63-year-old Tommy Elliott, was a good friend of Governor Andy Bashir. And you just read about these people. Another one, Juliana Farmer, just 45 years old, just posted on Facebook uh, welcoming a new grandchild who is about to come. These are their lives. You know, everyone has a personal story. We were talking about, like, Louisville. We said, well, there's a shooting here and there's a shooting there. And I just sort of did a random search of our hometowns or just home states, Mm. Louisiana, Alabama, Minnesota. And just you find similar stories almost in every single place that the incidences of gun violence, although random, very personal, and everyone has a connection. It's just crazy. It's right. And so this morning, the country is once again mourning and reeling from another mass shooting. We're now learning that the gunman who killed five co-workers at a bank in Louisville, Kentucky, recently found out he was going to be fired. A bank manager tells CNN the employee opened up fire in a conference room during a morning meeting yesterday. Can you imagine that, going to work and that happens? Police say the shooter live-streamed this bloody rampage on social media before police officers killed him in a shootout. And investigators say a rookie police officer was shot in the head and is fighting for his life this morning in the hospital. He just graduated from the police academy less than two weeks ago.
That is just hours after the shooting. The Louisville community began mourning the dead. This was a church service for Josh Barrick, a father of two. He was a senior vice president at the bank and a volunteer basketball coach for young kids at the church. Adrian Broaddus is live covering this for us in Louisville this morning. What can you tell us? Poppy, that shooter killed five of the people he worked with. That father of two was the youngest among the deceased. The search for motive begins in Louisville, Kentucky, after police say a 25-year-old bank employee shot his co-workers, leaving at least five dead. The suspect shot at officers, we then returned fire and stopped that threat. Police shot and killed the gunman, Connor Sturgeon. Investigators say he was still firing his AR-15 style rifle when officers arrived. The shooter had worked at Old National Bank for more than a year, but a law enforcement source says Sturgeon was recently told he would be fired. The source says Sturgeon wrote a note to his parents and a friend indicating he was going to carry out a shooting at the bank. It's not clear when the note was found. I got a call from my wife panicking that she was locked in the vault. Police say the shooter live streamed the attack to Instagram. It was also streamed to a Monday morning bank meeting. Rebecca Buschetti Sims, a manager at the bank, tells CNN. Sims says she watched from her computer as her co-workers were gunned down in the conference room. She says she didn't work directly with the alleged shooter, but knew him to be, quote, extremely intelligent with a low-key temperament. SWAT teams raided the gunman's home Monday afternoon as officials praised the quick action of first responders. It's got to be about them and the heroic actions of everybody who responded. One of the officers who ran into the gunfire was rookie cop Nicholas Wilt, who was shot in the head and is in critical condition. We were all praying and supporting him. It was just a week and a half ago uh, that I gave him, along with the chief, his graduation diploma from the academy. One of the five victims, a senior vice president at the bank, was a close friend of the governor. Tommy Elliott helped me build my law career, helped me become governor, gave me advice on being a good dad. And some of the officers who responded to this shooting also responded to another shooting that happened around the same time, less than two miles away from here. The interim chief, when she addressed members of law enforcement, she thanked her officers for showing up. And during that address, she said, if we don't do it, who will? So much bravery displayed yesterday. When I was on scene, I spoke with an officer who said it was his father who reminded him why he does what he does, and that's to help people. Running right into the danger, we are all praying for rookie cop Nicholas Wilt this morning and all those families. Adrian, thank you. Ahead in our 7 o'clock hour, the mayor and interim police chief of Louisville will join CNN this morning live. Yeah, looking forward to that, to see what he has to say. Now to Nashville, where expelled Tennessee state lawmaker Justin Jones has now been reinstated. Uh, 
That was a dramatic moment among many dramatic moments last night. 36 city council members voting unanimously Monday to return Jones to his seat after he was removed last week by Republicans for protesting gun violence on the House floor. The Democratic lawmaker was sworn in on the steps of the state capitol, surrounded by a crowd of supporters. Fellow ousted Democrat Justin Pearson could also be reinstated tomorrow, so we look for forward to that. CNN Isabel Rosales live for us in Nashville with more this morning. Good morning, Isabel. What has the reaction been to Jones's reinstatement? Good morning to you, Don. I think that Nashville has spoken loud and clear by handing Justin Jones his seat back. And now nearly 70,000 people in his district have representation again in the state house. Mr. Speaker, I want to welcome our newest member to the House Chambers, State Representative Justin Jones. Reinstated, Democrat Justin Jones walking back into the Tennessee House of Representatives to the sound of cheers four days after being expelled by the state's Republican majority. I want to welcome democracy back to the people's house. In a unanimous vote, the Nashville Metropolitan Council reappointing Jones as an interim representative for Nashville's House District 52. Late Monday, Jones spoke from the steps of the Capitol, thanking supporters while calling for the resignation of Tennessee Speaker of the House. Today we're sending a resounding message that democracy will not be killed in the comfort of silence. Today we send a clear message to Speaker Cameron Sexton that the people will not allow his, his crimes against democracy to happen without challenge. Republicans expelled Jones and his colleague Justin Pearson for violating rules of decorum during a protest last week on gun reform in the wake of the shooting at the Covenant School in Nashville last month. This is a sacred place that belongs to everybody and literally start looking up into the gallery with a bullhorn, getting the protesters worked up into a frenzy. That is incumbent on us to say, You've gone a step too far. Sometimes rules have to be broken in order for the voices that have been marginalized and told that they are voiceless to be heard. As for Pearson, he says he's hopeful his vacant Memphis district seat will also be addressed during a special meeting tomorrow. If it is the will of God and the people in Shelby County for me to serve, I promise to continue to do so. And I'm going to do it, I believe, with all of the people who continue to show up for us in this moment who are saying it's enough and now is the time for us to create change in this state. And over in Memphis, uh, political tensions have been rising with the chairman of the Tennessee Democratic Party claiming that they, uh, Memphis and Shelby County have faced political threats of losing state funding for key projects should they reinstate Justin Pearson. Don. Again, we will be watching. Thank you, Isabel Rosales, joining us very early in Nashville, their central time, 5 o'clock, 510. Next hour, we're going to be joined by Representative Gloria Johnson, who survived her expulsion vote. We're going to get her reaction to Justin Jones being reinstated. Yeah, can't wait to see that. Also this morning, we're tracking a development out of the White House as President Biden is set to depart shortly for Northern Ireland. He is going to mark the 25th anniversary of the Good Friday Agreement. That's the peace deal that was brokered in part by the United States and helped bring an end to decades of sectarian violence. But ahead of the president's high-profile visit, masked men were seen, thrown, seen throwing Molotov cocktails at police during a pro-Irish march on Monday. CNN's Nick Robertson is live in Belfast for us. Nick, obviously, anytime a president goes anywhere, there are heightened security concerns. You can see it on the ground days before he even gets there. He's set to leave this morning. What are you seeing on the ground and what's it like in Belfast right now? 
Yeah, I think there's a mood of expectation. Uh, the president's coming. Some streets are locked down already. There are an additional 300 police officers have come over from mainland UK just in the past few weeks. The terror threat level here was raised from substantial to severe, meaning an attack went from being likely to being highly likely. Uh, and I think the president's message here is going to be about moving forward that Good Friday peace agreement. One of the signature things that it did was not just bring peace, it brought into place a power-sharing government. But that power-sharing government is stalled over disagreements about Brexit. But, of course, underlying Brexit, it's all about business. So when the president does his ribbon-cutting ceremony at uh, the university here in the centre of Belfast, a huge investment there in the future potential education uh, and the needs of the, of the business community here, that will be, I think, underscoring his message that develop business, improve the economy, and then all those kids that we saw yesterday throwing those petrol bombs in those economically deprived areas, those whole communities get an uplift. That's the success of business, and that would be moving the situation here forward. Yeah, and it's his first visit there as president since taking office. Nick Robertson will stay with you for all the developments. Thank you. A huge legal battle over abortion and medication abortion specifically continues. Women across the nation could lose access just days from now. The Justice Department is now stepping in. The fate of Mifepristone, a widely used abortion pill, is now in the hands of a federal appeals court in the Fifth Circuit. Just yesterday, the Department of Justice asked that court to pause a Texas judge's ruling that would suspend the FDA's approval of the pill, effectively banning it nationwide. The maker of Mifepristone also filed a similar request to the Fifth Circuit. It calls for allowing people to continue using this drug while this appeals process plays out. If the appeals court does not stay the Texas ruling, this all happens Friday at midnight. Let's bring in CNN Supreme Court reporter Ariane DeVogue. Ariane, good morning to you. Okay, so I thought what was interesting in the appeal is they also put forward doctors to talk about the adverse impact on their patients. Because remember, this is not just a pill used for abortion. This is a pill used for um, miscarriages. Women who are enduring the, the physical and emotional pain of a miscarriage also use this to complete the process, about a million women a year go through miscarriages. So these doctors were part of it as well. Right, that's what's interesting here is it's healthcare workers and also the drug makers. They came in here and said basically that this judge, this lower court judge was trying to act like a doctor and mm. he rejected decades and decades of this uh, <coughs> safety recommendations. This drug has been on the market for some 20 years. And one of the doctors actually uh, filed this sworn declaration with with the court. And here is what she said. She said, uh, restricted access to this safe therapeutic threatens the health of real people, people who are mothers, sisters, daughters, wives, and friends of our country. But also, Poppy, the drug makers themselves are weighing in because they think that this lower court decision actually might destabilize how all drugs are regulated. That is what they're worried about. And it's very rare to see them all come together. So you've got the healthcare workers, you've got the doctors, and you've got this, uh, um, the drug companies too, all very concerned and all on this very tight uh, timeline. Yeah. Just a few days until this would take effect Friday at midnight. Yeah. Ariane, thank you for the reporting very much.
Thanks. Straight ahead, the latest on how the Pentagon is investigating the scope and scale of the highly classified documents leak. Plus, scorched earth. We are live on the ground in Ukraine with a new breakdown of Russia's tactics in eastern Ukraine. That's next. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. This morning, the Pentagon is scrambling to determine the scope and the scale of the classified documents leak that was uncovered last week. The documents now include secret information on the war in Ukraine, as well as insights into the extent that the U.S. spies on its enemies and its allies. New Washington Post reporting this morning also says that the documents reveal Egypt was secretly planning to produce 40,000 rockets for Russia. CNN's Natasha Bertrand is live at the Pentagon. Natasha, I know that there have been some questions about what information in here is accurate. We've heard that from officials who seem very frustrated. But I was so struck by the idea that they can't even say, you know, whether or not this is going to get worse, whether or not this leak has actually been contained at this point. That is the big question, Caitlin, that the Pentagon is grappling right now. Just how big is this leak? They simply do not know at this point. That is part of what they're investigating. And they have stood up an interagency effort to do a damage assessment, as well as to investigate whether there are any more classified documents out there that they simply have not recovered yet. So just to remind viewers, these documents have been sitting online on this Discord server for at least a month. And the Secretary of Defense was not actually briefed on their existence until just last Thursday. But a senior Pentagon official who briefed reporters yesterday said that they are really, it's all hands on deck at this point to try to figure out just how bad this leak is and whether it could jeopardize sensitive sources and methods. Here's what he said. The Department of Defense is working around the clock to look at the scope and scale of the distribution, the assessed impact, and our mitigation measures. We're still investigating how this happened as well as the scope of the issue. Now, we know, according to our sources, that many of these documents, if not all of them, do appear authentic, but some of them, or at least one, I should say, does appear to have been altered, and that is a document that lists Russian and Ukrainian casualties in the war in Ukraine. An altered document appears to show those Russian casualties as being a lot lower than what the Pentagon has actually assessed. But by and large, the Department of Defense, as well as the Justice Department, which is investigating this as a criminal matter, do seem to think that these are real and that they could pose a serious risk to national security, Caitlin. Yeah, the the trove of information and just how recent it is is stunning. Natasha Bertrand, keep us updated on what you learned from the Pentagon. A Ukrainian commander says Russian forces have switched their tactics to a scorched earth policy on the eastern front. Watch this. The commander says Russia is destroying buildings and defensive positions with airstrikes and artillery fire. Residents in Bakhmut, a city which has already been reduced to ruin, are now taking shelter in nearby Chasiv Yar. CNN's Nick Payton Walsh joins us now live from central Ukraine with more on this. Good morning to you, uh, Nick. The question is, how much of Bakhmut do Russians have control over? Well, they say, and I say they, a separatist leader who visited over the weekend posted a video in which he claimed 75% uh, was under Russian control. Now, that may not be massively distant from the truth, but we're talking percentage fluctuations over the past months. The street-by-street fighting has occurred. Now, certainly Russia has more than it did probably a month ago, absolutely. Uh, They are certainly fighting hard for the central parts of that city, the railway station, the central square as 
well. That's where some of those videos over the weekend were posted from. But those scorch earth tactics are leaving a city uh, of questionable uh, strategic value, but now massive symbolic value, with very little left of it, frankly, to conquer. And that brings to mind the essential question about what Russia's tactics really are. If they're seeking in their uh, warped view to save uh, Ukrainian citizens from their government here, then how are they destroying so much of the country they're claiming to be here to try and rescue? And also, too, strategically, what do they have left to try and defend or even get cover in if so much of these towns they're trying to take are in fact destroyed? But there are still Ukrainian forces in the West holding on quite persistently, frankly. This fight for Bakhmut, though, as I say, of questionable strategic value becoming more of a sideshow as the noise grows around Ukraine's counter-offensive long planned by their allies uh, with the assistance of allies in the West, US and NATO. A lot of equipment coming in. Those leaks Natasha were talking about, frankly, shocking to me to see so much potentially very pertinent information emerge at the exact time when people are trying to work out which side knows what about the other's preparation of this offensive. A decisive moment, certainly, and one, I think, that's being shaken uh, in the days possibly ahead of its beginning by this leak. Don? Nick Payton-Walls. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. Well, part homecoming, part diplomacy. In just a few hours, President Biden will fly to his ancestral homeland, and Ardonio Sullivan is live in Belfast. They're coming to my Hi, Donny. Hey, Papi. Yes, we're live here in Belfast, Northern Ireland, uh, ahead of the president's visit here. That's coming up uh, next after break. No, I may be Irish, but I'm not stupid. I married Dominic Giacoppo's daughter. <laughs> and he used to have an expression. He said, if you're lucky enough to be Irish, you're lucky enough. Every St. Patrick's Day, every Irishman goes out to find another Irishman to make a speech to. Well, that's why I'm here. It's a lot of green in that audience. Did you see that? <laughs> so much green. I'm wearing green today. I don't know if any U.S. president has ever quoted Irish poets as much in speeches. As Biden does, but you can basically bet on it every time he speaks. This, at the White House, do they call him President O. Biden? On, <laughs> <laughs> on that same. <laughs> okay, <laughs> that was pretty good, actually. All right, uh, as we are saying, President Biden's Irish heritage is no secret. In just a couple hours, he is going to leave the White House to visit his ancestral home. The president's great, great, great grandfather left Ireland for the United States back in the 19th century after the potato famine. Now his distant cousin, who actually still lives in the family's hometown, says the community is pulling out all the steps ahead of the president's visit. CNN's own Irishman, Donny O'Sullivan, oh, is Sullivan. live in Belfast in Northern Ireland. <laughs> Donny, I mean, this is kind of amazing to see that you're on this trip. You're welcoming, you know, Biden, who's known as the most Irish president since JFK. Um, what, what's it like? What's it like been on the ground so far? How are people preparing for his, him to come? It's been a lot of fun, Caitlin. I don't know what you're saying, that this White House job is so difficult. Um, <laughs> it's, it's been 60 years uh, since President... <laughs> It's been 60 years since President Kennedy uh, came uh, to Ireland and started a tradition uh, of American presidents coming here uh, to track their Irish heritage. And Ireland has some unusual ways uh, of honouring US presidents. Have a look. I'm currently at probably the most highly regarded landmark 
in Ireland. Welcome to Barack Obama Plaza. It's become a viral favorite on TikTok. On the side of an Irish motorway, a rest stop named after President Barack Obama. Hello, Ireland. My name is Barack Obama of the Moneygall Obamas. Barack Obama Plaza was built here in the tiny village of Moneygall, where Obama's ancestors immigrated from in the 19th century. I suspect you don't always dress up this much. <laughs> Obama visited the village in 2011. So that makes you guys... Eighth cousins. Okay. Yeah. And what's your nickname? He gave me the nickname Henry VIII. Henry Healy is Obama's distant cousin and is now a manager at the Barack Obama Plaza. I think it definitely raises some eyebrows in the United States when they hear there's a rest stop at the side of a highway uh, named after an American president. There does be some shock and awe. The co cardboard cutouts that we have here are phenomenally popular. Thousands cheer with the enthusiasm that only Irishmen can muster. Ireland's love affair with US presidents began when President John F. Kennedy visited his ancestral home here in New Ross County, Wexford, in 1963. And you were sitting in the front row? I was about, uh, I'd say, maybe 10, 15 yards out there. Mark Minahan's dad was mayor of New Rossa at the time and was to introduce Kennedy to the crowd. Can you hear me now? Can you hear me? Some of the microphones stopped working just as JFK arrived. The microphones broke down just before he started, so he was even more uptight. Uh, the, the microphones broke down? The microphones broke down when J President Kennedy was only over at the, coming along the street here. We're in right trouble now. The technical glitch was eventually resolved and the speech ended up going ahead. It took 115 years to make this trip. A trip which included a visit here. So this is the original farmyard the president the president's great-grandfather Patrick Kennedy left from he actually left through that gate the same gate oh, wow. during the famine when he went off to Boston like many Irish Americans Kennedy's great-grandfather immigrated to the United States during the Irish potato famine I think he decided to come back to Europe and show that he was proud of his peasant roots Kennedy began a tradition of presidential visits to Ireland. Reagan visited in 1984. So many Irish men and women from every walk of life played a role in creating the dream of America. The interiors of this pub in Reagan's ancestral village of Ballyporeen were eventually shipped to California to the Reagan Presidential Library. Now perhaps the most Irish of Irish-American presidents is about to visit the country, and his cousins, the Blewitts, here in Ballina County Mayo, are getting ready. Tell us how you're related to the president, first of all. So, my dad is his third cousin. So his great-great-grandfather, Edward Blewett, left Balna in the 1860s. And he went to move to Scranton. Uh, girls, how does it feel to be related to a president? Um, it's very exciting. Yeah. He's president. And have you met him before? Yeah, yeah we've met, met him twice. twice. Yeah, what so. did he say to you? He was, just, he was just eating our chips and when he, when the fancy meals came out, he just wanted the chips and chicken nuggets. So. He was stealing your chicken nuggets? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Biden's ancestors, the Blewitts and the Finnegans, immigrated from counties Mayo and Loud. Your, your dad and Joe Biden are third cousins. Yes. Uh, but you seem to be the favourite cousin. <laughs> I don't know why, but, uh, well, maybe it's just <laughs> my personality. <laughs> 
everybody. Biden has visited Ireland in the past and Larissa Lewis has made multiple trips to the White House. But this will be the first time they will welcome him to Ireland as president. We, we've struck up a great friendship since the first day that we met. You know, his family are, are steeped in Irish traditions. He, you know, he talks about it all the time. So he tells great stories of growing up and basically growing up in an Irish household, even though, you know, obviously they were very much American. From accepting the Presidential Medal of Freedom... You know, I can't let a comment go by without quoting an Irish poet. <laughs> ...to accepting the Democratic Party's nomination for president. The Irish poet Seamus Heaney once wrote... Biden always seems to have a line of Irish poetry to hand. But then, once in a lifetime, the longed-for tidal wave of justice can rise up and hope and history rhyme. And he's, he's just so proud of his Irish roots. Like, he's really proud of his Irish roots. Um, yeah, we have had the other presidents, but this president is more important, I think, to Ireland than the rest of them. Now, before President Biden travels south to the Republic of Ireland, he's going to land here this evening uh, in Northern Ireland uh, on the 25th anniversary of the Good Friday uh, peace agreement, which was a huge accomplishment. Um, but it, it is still quite an uneasy uh, peace here. There is uh, still a lot of tension and the uh, power sharing government, that former government that was set up under that uh, agreement uh, currently isn't uh, functioning. Um, but. After that, uh, he'll be here a bit of today and tomorrow, and then we'll move south uh, to see his cousins, as you saw there in that piece. And um, I guess if he's lucky, guys, if he's like Obama, uh, the Irish might name a, a rest stop after him. <laughs> <laughs> we'll see. Donny, yeah. a trip with major political, but also personal yeah. uh, significance. Thank you so much, Donny. No stealing of chicken nuggets. Thank you, <laughs> Donny. I appreciate it. So it may be rare and unheard of, but what's playing out in Tennessee happens more often and closer to home than you might think. Next, we're zooming out and taking a look at super majorities in state houses across the country. Today we're sending a resounding message that democracy will not be killed in the comfort of silence. Was reinstated, Tennessee State Rep Justin Jones addressing supporters outside the state capitol in Nashville. Jones and fellow Democratic lawmaker Justin Pearson were removed from their seats last week in the state legislature by the Republican majority for participating in a gun reform protest in the House chamber accused of breaking decorum. Let's step back. How did we get here in the first place? Our next guest says it's emblematic of what's happening in a lot of state houses across the country. Joining us now, David Pepper, the author of Laboratories of Autocracy, a wake-up call from behind the lines, also the former chairman of the Ohio Democratic Party. David, it's good to be with you. I think... You know, I've loved your book for, I don't know, it's been out for a year and a half, two years. But I think what's happened in Tennessee shines a light on what you write. The reason you wrote this book is, wake up, America. You're not paying attention to what's happening in states. You're talking too much and focusing on D.C. What do you make of Tennessee? Big picture. Yeah, it's, ab yeah, it's absolutely true. I mean, the front line of the attack on democracy in this country are the state houses, like Tennessee's, like Ohio's, like Florida's, for a lot of reasons. Uh, no one's paying attention. M most people have no idea who these state reps are. They're gerrymandered to a hilt, so there's almost no choice or democracy in these places. You know, for example, the, the Tennessee Republican majority that voted those two out last week, more than half of them didn't even face a contested election last November. Uh, they, they ignore laws in Ohio. They violate the Constitution to gerrymander their own districts. 
if we saw in another country all the things that these state houses were doing here, we would literally say you're losing your democracy, but because it happens here, we really don't pay attention to it. Uh, we also get really blinded by Washington. You know, mm -hmm. there are hundreds of people just like Marjorie Taylor Greene in office in these state houses, but they're not just on Twitter, they're not just talking like she and George Santos are, they're actually passing laws every week attacking democracy. So we really have to focus on these state houses, bring some light to them, and more importantly than that, bring some accountability to all these people who are behaving in ways that should counter democracy in its most basic sense. You, you make a very good point when you talk about what happens often happens in silos and it doesn't get the media attention as what's happening in Congress. I think that's mm -hmm. very important. So I want to show you what happened. This is in the Florida State House. The committee debated a bill that would make it a misdemeanor for people to use certain bathrooms that don't align with their sex at birth. Listen, this is a Republican lawmaker making these comments uh, that are deemed offensive and transphobic. Watch this. The Lord rebuke you, Satan, and all of your demons and all of your imps who come and parade before us. That's right. I called you demons and imps. So he is calling people names, pejoratives. He did later apologize. But is there a political incentive to using rhetoric like that? Yeah, once you realize, like that Tennessee State House, that most of these uh, quote unquote elected officials are, are in districts they can never lose, once you see that there's no accountability at all at the general election level, every incentive these lawmakers face is to be an extremist. You would have done worse as a Republican in a gerrymandered district last week to vote with Democrats not to expunge those lawmakers. You, that's actually a risk for you to lose your office, but you get ahead by being an extremist. So in these states that are locked up through gerrymandering and voter suppression and uncontested races, what you see is all the incentives aligned for the worst behavior, which is why we see this downward spiral towards extremism against democracy and pushing forward bills that are deep Deeply unpopular. That's another really important point here. Polls show us that Tennesseans support the very common sense reforms those protesters and those legislators who were kicked out support. So, so much of this activity done by these right-wing legislators, legislatures, are done against the majority will of the citizens of their state. So these are institutions that are locked up and they're advancing an extreme agenda Damn. and ignoring the people of the very states they're in. All of this happens once you have a world like these state houses have become of zero accountability because of districts these people think can't lose. But David, how much of this has to do with local media and the fact that it is shrinking on what's like a daily basis? My home state of Alabama, the three major papers aren't publishing uh, this happened recently in the way that they were. How much does that have to do with this, where local reporters don't have a platform and the resources to report on things like this? It's a massive contributor. The average state house has three reporters covering it. And the local, and that's sort of the larger state house uh, paper, papers with state house bureaus. The local papers that serve smaller towns are just dying, we know that. And those were the papers that would have covered, here's what your local state rep did or has been doing. You add those two things up and these places are largely anonymous. No one knows who their state reps are. They don't know what the state budget does. They don't know how that new law impacts them. And so it's really dangerous whenever you have a whole lot of power and total anonymity. 
And that's what these state houses have become. So the shrinking of local media, not again, the big papers that have state house bureaus, but especially the small papers that would have given you coverage of that legislator from your district, those combined to be a real problem. Throw into that the fact that a whole lot of these people literally don't face a contested election in a November like the ones in Tennessee. That means that no one ever covers these people. They're not even in an election. There's no one knocking on doors saying what they've done. That, that anonymity really creates a problem uh, that, that, you know, and by the way, if your goal in life is to get some really bad things done, then a state house turns out to be the perfect place to do it because no one's paying attention. Go to the state house, you'll get it done. Go to Washington, you guys will cover it. Papers will cover it. So if you want to get bad stuff done, you go to the places that no one's covering. So yes, it's a big part of the problem. All right, David Pepper. It's Thank a pleasure you. having you on. Thank, Thank you. you. Laboratories of It's a great read. Your, your point about the media is so, yeah. so, so local media, yeah. so spot on. And this morning, the State Department is declaring that the Wall Street Journal reporter Evan Gershkovich is being wrongfully detained in Russia, how this could help the efforts to bring him home. More CNN this morning to come after the break. So we have some major updates in the case of detained journalist Evan Gershkovich. Russia is still denying the U.S. counselor access to the Wall Street Journal reporter, a violation of international law. And the State Department is also formally declaring Gershkovich uh, wrongfully detained nearly two weeks after his arrest. He was detained last month on a reporting trip and charged with espionage, charges the U.S. government and the Wall Street Journal denies. So joining us now is Wall Street Journal's bureau chief, Washington bureau chief, uh, Paul Beckett, he has been working with Evan's family, the Wall Street Journal attorneys, and the U.S. government to get Evan released. We thank you for joining us this morning. Appreciate thank it you. so much. Good morning to you. So what additional resources are now at your disposal with the U.S. now classifying this as him as wrongfully detained? The wrongful detention designation essentially makes him a hostage of a foreign government. Uh, up until this point, it was an issue for a consular affairs, uh, as with any distressed American abroad. Uh, in this case, it will now make him a hostage, and it gives the U.S. the ability to negotiate for and secure his release. It allows the State Department to work more closely with Congress, to work with private parties if necessary, and uh, expands the range of options that can bring him home. I want to ask you about something. Uh, just yesterday when this news broke, the Dow Jones CEO, Almar Latour, said this about keeping it in the news and breaking the news. He was at an event last night. I want to play this and then get your response. Here it is. Uh, well, so this is a, a punch in the face of free press. And so what can you do is you know, keep on focused, uh, being focused on this, focus on, uh, on Evans' release, uh, but also keep voicing your support. Uh, Evan himself has uh, gotten uh, word of uh, some of the support that, uh, that, uh, that, that has been offered, and he's, he's thankful for, uh, for that, as we have heard from, from, uh, from our lawyers, his lawyers. Uh, and so this matters for him, it matters for his family, uh, and it matters for media. I wonder how much um, that will help just keeping it in the news. I know on the, uh, on the website and on the app, if you go there, mm -hmm. his story is front and center and you have to scroll by it. Same thing, you're keeping it uh, on the cover of the paper. You must keep this in the news so that it doesn't pass. How much does all of this help? Uh, this deeming it him wrongfully detained and keeping it in the news as the Dow Jones CEO said there. 
Well, we've been extremely grateful for the support of uh, journalistic colleagues both in the U.S. and around the world. It's uh, for us, as colleagues of Evans, it's uh, shed some light on or, or provided some light in a very dark situation. Uh, I think it's very important to maintain awareness of his case because we know in previous cases uh, this can go on for quite a long time. We're obviously very hopeful that he can come back a lot sooner than that, but we have to brace for the long term and raising awareness of his plight also raises the fact that this is an attack on the free press. You know, Evan was a one of a small number of reporters in Russia covering a vitally important story, and this is what happens. Uh, the government nabbed him on bogus charges, and he's now sitting in a solitary confinement in a Moscow jail. We had his friend, Piotr Sauer, who's a fellow um, journalist for The Guardian, um, on last, last week, and I was so struck Paul, by what he said, you know, he described Evan as sort of an all-American kid, but we know he was born to parents who fled Russia. And then he said he thought it was his duty to keep reporting, but now I think it's our duty to really let the world know what's going on with Evan's conditions. It's striking sort of the full circle for his family here. And I know you've been speaking to them. I have, and they're incredibly stoic, uh, but incredibly disturbed. Obviously, they were uh, Jewish emigres from the Soviet Union. Uh, they came, Evan was born and grew up in New Jersey. Uh, his parents now live in Philadelphia. And it was their heritage and Evan's heritage that really attracted him to Russia. He speaks excellent Russian uh, as a result, and he wanted to tell Russia's story to the world. Uh, and then, unfortunately, he's become the story of how appallingly Russia treats journalists. What do we know about his condition? Very little. It's a completely opaque process. Uh, we've had uh, lawyers in to see him a couple of times that have been hired by the Wall Street Journal. Uh, the Russian government, despite assurances that they would provide this, have not provided him any access to any U.S. embassy staff in Moscow, which, as you noted earlier, is a flagrant violation of international law. Uh, so everything we know about Evan and the meager reports we're getting from our lawyers is that he's in decent health. Uh, he's a very optimistic, uh, very curious young reporter. So, you know, so far so good under the circumstances. I would just emphasize the circumstances are mm -hmm. he's in solitary confinement yeah. in a Sorry. Russian security services prison with no access to any American government official. And, and Russia defying international law with their actions. Paul Beckett, thank you. We are all standing with all of you. Thanks very much. Thank CNN. you very much. Appreciate it. Of course. CNN This Morning continues right now. A 25-year-old gunman opened fire inside the bank, killing five people and injuring at least eight others. Police revealing the shooter was an employee at the bank and had live-streamed the attack. I got a call from my wife panicking that she was locked in the vault, that there was an active shooter in the building. This should not continue to happen. The Tennessee two is down to one. Today we're sending a resounding message that democracy will not be killed in the comfort of silence. Officials in Nashville voted to reinstate Justin Jones, one of the two lawmakers expelled from the state house last week. My message to the young people here in America is that if your voice did not matter, they would not be trying so hard to silence it. 
DOJ asked an appeals court to freeze the judge's order, which will make Mifepristone unavailable nationwide this Friday. We are ready to fight. This is going to be a long fight. We understand this. We stand by FDA's approval. We've got to continue to roll up our sleeves and be activated and use every tool at our disposal to protect these fundamental rights. U.S. officials scrambling to find who's responsible for leaking highly sensitive documents. The Pentagon has already taken some steps to tighten the flow of such sensitive information. We don't know who's behind this. We don't know what the motive is. We don't know what else might be out there. Yesterday, well, as you know, it was Easter. Our, our first guest tonight also rose from the dead. Jeremy Renner is here. I woke up. First thing I ever thought about, my first conscious thought was like, holy hell, my calendar's freed up for the rest of the year. If there was any question as to who the toughest Avenger was, that's settled <laughs> now, right? Yeah, Scarlett, Scarlett Johansson. And good morning, everyone. Glad Jeremy Renner is okay. We'll get to that in a moment, but we're barely new show, five months in. And how many of these shootings have we covered? Too many. Just way too many. And the folks in Louisville and around the country, everyone's paying attention, but just dealing with this rash of gun violence that happens. We're going to be following all of that because this morning we're learning more about the gunman who killed those five co-workers at a bank in Louisville, Kentucky. He was recently notified that he was going to be fired. Watch. So um, this is eyewitness video that you're looking at of police rushing to the scene as gunfire was ringing out there. A law enforcement source tells CNN that the shooter wrote a note to his parents and a friend indicating that he was going to open fire in the bank. But it is unclear if they saw it before that mass shooting. A bank manager says that the shooter attacked his co-workers during a morning meeting in a conference room. Police say that he live-streamed his bloody rampage on social media before police officers killed him in a shootout. And we're told a rookie officer who was shot in the head and is in critical condition now, uh, he graduated from the police academy less than two weeks ago. As it is usually in these situations, the community is heartbroken there, mourning the victims. This is a church service for Josh Barrick, a father of two. He was a senior vice president at the bank and a volunteer basketball coach for young children at the church. And joining us now is the Louisville mayor, Craig Greenberg, and the interim police chief, Jacqueline Gwynn Villaroel. Thank you so much, both, for being here. I can't even imagine what the last 24 hours have been like for both of you. Mayor, can I just can I start with you and just everyone wants to know how, how the, the community is doing. How's everyone doing that you've spoken to? Our city is heartbroken, heartbroken for the loss of friends and loved ones. We're thankful, thankful for the officers that responded bravely and so quickly and address this situation in a professional and brave manner. We're thankful to the doctors and nurses of the University of Louisville Hospital who have saved lives and continue to save lives and are working to save the life of Officer Wilt, who you just mentioned, uh, was one of the heroic responders yesterday. But we're also tired. We're tired of acts of violence, of evil acts of gun violence. And so in the hours and days ahead, we are going to come together and support each other and love each other and give each other strength for healing. 
but also for taking action to continue to do everything possible to reduce the amount of gun violence that's plaguing our city, that's plaguing our country. And Chief, I know you had just said yesterday, you just sworn in Officer Will not that long ago after he graduated from the police academy. I think it was 11 or 12 days ago. What do we know about how he's doing this morning? Yes, um, we have some positive news um, that was provided to us on yesterday evening um, that Officer Will is still in critical condition, but he's stable, but he's looking better. And so we're hopeful and we're continuing to pray and we just thank you know, everybody for all of the thoughts that have been sent our way um, as we deal with this tragedy that took place on yesterday. And so, and for all of the other victims that lost their lives uh, senselessly and those that were injured. Um, so we just really appreciate the community um, for really just reaching out and pouring out to us as we navigate this uh, uncertain waters. Absolutely. And we're praying for him too here at CNN. I want you to know that when it comes to the investigation, Yesterday you said you only wanted to use the shooter's name once, Chief. Do we know anything else about how he obtained the gun that was used in yesterday's shooting? So we're doing, uh, of course, a thorough investigation um, at this time. And so from our understanding, and again, we'll have a little bit more details um, later on, um, but he recently purchased um, that weapon um, that was used on yesterday. Um, and so, but again, we'll have some better and more thorough um, details to provide to the community and, and to everyone because you need to know. Um, but we want to make sure that we provide detailed and accurate information um, as we navigate um, this, again, this tragedy on yesterday. We know a SWAT team went to his house. Has a search warrant been executed anywhere else that you can speak about this morning? There was a search warrant and that was taking place on yesterday at his home. Um, that's what I'm able to reveal right now at this time. And so we are hoping that um, that items that were recovered that will reveal why this happened. It shouldn't have happened, but why this happened um, on yesterday. And so all of that information will be available. Okay. And we'll wait. We'll wait to hear more from that. I know you want it to be as accurate as possible. So I, I totally yes. understand that. What about the yes. note? Because we were told that he had left a note basically declaring his intentions with this bank. Do we know who found that or if they found it before the shooting happened or anything on that, Chief? Again, uh, again, we're still in the preliminary stages of everything, but making sure that we're connecting everything appropriately. Um, we will actually reveal that information, but I want to make sure that I don't misspeak because um, the, the public and the, the families, they need to make sure that I get it right and that we as a department make sure that we get it right. And so that accurate information will be forthcoming. Yeah, and we appreciate that as well. Obviously, we want it to be all accurate information that's out there. Mayor, when we look at this, it wasn't just this shooting at the bank yesterday. There was another one that was only a short distance away from where this bank happened. You yourself the survivor of a workplace shooting that happened just last year. You have this uniquely American but disturbing experience. You know, what can you say to the other survivors about, about your own experience with this? Take time with loved ones. Uh, accept the support and love that others are giving you. I encouraged, I, I actually yesterday, the, the local CEO of, of the bank is a, a friend of mine. I'd heard conflicting reports earlier in the morning about whether he had survived or not. And, I, and as I was leaving the hospital yesterday, I turned a corner and ran into him and saw him there alive. And I 
we exchanged hugs and we exchanged, I let him know that we now share something unfortunate in common to have both survived a horrible workplace shooting. I encouraged him to see a therapist, to encourage everyone that was involved and survived, even if they were physically unharmed, it is still impactful and to talk to others, talk to professionals, um, to focus on yourself, your physical and mental well-being in the days and weeks ahead to recover and to be able to move on. Um, I think that's important because these acts of violence impact so many people. Those who are killed, those who are injured, those who were there and survived also are impacted as well as their families and loved ones. And so we are praying and here to support everyone impacted yesterday um, by the tragic acts of gun violence and, and every day. That's what our community stands for and that's what we'll continue to do. And I know Tommy Elliott, he was a friend of yours too. What do you, what do you want people to know about him this morning? Tommy was a great man. Uh, he was a great friend. He is the definition of loyalty. He was the definition of friendship. He was a close friend of Governor Bashir's, myself, and so many around the city. And he will be missed, as I know will the other four victims who were employees at Old National Bank. I did not know them personally like I knew Tommy, but the stories that I've heard about them, they were wonderful people as well. And whether it was the victims yesterday here, or whether it's the victim just a few blocks west of here that was also killed in a targeted act of gun violence or that are killed anywhere in Louisville or our country, we must work together to end this plague of gun violence on our country. Enough. Mayor Greenberg, Police Chief Gwen Villarreal, I know you two just, it's been an intense 24 hours. We're really grateful for your time this morning. Chief, we'll look forward to your update on the, the latest on the investigation later. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. The word enough says it all. Caitlin, thank you for that. The Gun Violence Archive says there have been more, at least 160, 146 rather, mass shootings so far in the United States this year. It's only April, right? We're only four months in. More than 200 people have been killed and hundreds more injured by guns in this country again this year. And this means that more Americans are experiencing gun-related violence as a victim, family, or victim, or family of victim or witness. The new survey by Kaiser Family Foundation shows one in five adults, so that's 20% of American adults, say they have been threatened with a gun at some point in their life. CNN Chief Medical Correspondent Dr. Sanjay Gupta joins us now. There's so much stunning, but let's start with the headlines out of this survey. This, this gives you a real uh, sort of snapshot into the psyche of, of the United States right now when it comes to guns and some of the numbers you just mentioned there. But about, about 50,000 people die of, of gun violence every year, about half suicides, half homicides. Uh, and the numbers have been going up. They went up considerably uh, over the past few years. That, that's one of the concerns. But just in terms of the, the daily worry, how much people worry about this on a regular basis, how many people have been affected by this directly, that's what the survey really tried to get at. And as you mentioned, if you look at adults specifically, um, the experience with gun-related incidents, 17% have witnessed, about one in five, have witnessed someone get shot. Close to the same number, uh, a little bit higher, have had family members who have been killed by a gun. 
again, either homicide or suicide, 21% have been threatened uh, with a gun. You look at these numbers, I mean, they're, they're, they're pretty staggering. And, and keep in mind, as you, as you sort of think about this, that gun violence is now the leading cause of death among children and yeah. teens. It surpassed car accidents over the last couple of years. And then if you ask this, this question, how often do people fear this? How, how big a deal is it in their, in their sort of daily lives? What you come to find is that uh, the, the numbers again have been increasing, but 40% worry about this sometimes, 10% worry about it almost every day and 8% worry about it every day. They're thinking about this more and more. So the numbers have been increasing overall, and America's perceptions of that have followed suit as well. It's interesting the number of teens who, just the percentage that it has skyrocketed just since Hit 20. The leading cause of yeah, yeah. death for kids and teenagers more than car accidents. That's yeah. insanity. Another, another thing that, that struck me is that 41% of adults live in a household with a gun, mm -hmm. Sanjay. And uh, that's about three quarters of them say that the gun is stored in a way that bucks really common safety practices. Talk about that. Yeah. Yeah, I'm going to I'm going to show you some of these numbers and I'm going to preface by saying this. It's been hard to collect this sort of data um, in many places. You can't even ask about uh, guns in the household. You can't ask if a gun is present. You can't ask how the gun is stored. So it's hard to get this sort of data. This was based on a survey, again, by the Kaiser Family Foundation. They found that the way the guns were stored, 36% are stored loaded. Uh, that's not how they should be stored. 44% stored unlocked and 52% stored in the same location as ammunition. That, that's one of the big concerns here is that it, you know more houses have guns than before. The numbers have been going up and how they are stored potentially being sources of danger. Again, especially for, for young people, that has, that has um, gone up as well. So that's, that's one of the concerns here. As we try and figure out solutions with regard to guns, simply addressing how they are stored, doing it as safely as possible is one of the things the survey uh, focused on. Yeah, and it's like the number one thing you learn when it comes to guns. But as Sanjay, as Poppy was just noting there, the fact that it is the leading killer of children here in America, what does this survey reveal to you? What stood out about just broadly what is happening to children here in the United States? Yeah, you know, one of the things, Caitlin, that, that stood out in, in sort of in this report, I'm going to show you some of the numbers, but about 20%, about one in five parents nowadays, they have considered moving their kids out of their current school because of the concerns about gun violence. Where exactly they would move, that's a little less clear, but that's how big a problem this is, how big a concern. When you talk to parents specifically uh, about this, 38% say they worry about it sometimes, 13% almost every day, and 12% worry about this every day. If you have children younger than 18 in your house right now, about a quarter of you think about this almost all the time which is, again, staggering. This wasn't something that you know, really registered as much, certainly a decade ago, even a few years ago, but these numbers have been increasing. Again, not just the numbers of people who are dying by gun violence, close to 50,000 a year, but the toll now on the American psyche. Uh, we haven't really gotten a glimpse of that in the past. Yeah. And the question now that parents are asking that they sleepovers are going over to other people's homes, is there a gun in the house? That didn't right. happen when I was a kid. No one ever asked if there was a gun in the house. We just said, hey, can I go sleep at such and such a house for a sleepover? Yes or no, you know? Yeah. Sanjay. All right, Sanjay, thank you so much. Yeah.
You got it. Thank you. So we're going to move on now and talk about former President Trump, right, has filed a long shot appeal to stop a judge's order for former Vice President Mike Pence to testify before the grand jury in the January 6th investigation. According to a source familiar with the case, Trump argues his conversations with Pence are protected by executive privilege. It is important to note that Trump has already lost several attempts to block other top officials from testifying. CNN's senior crime and justice reporter is Caitlin Paulance. She is live in Washington with more. Caitlin, good morning. Another appeal to keep someone quiet. Any chance that this one works? I don't think so, although you never know with the courts. But at this point in time, this is the fourth time that Donald Trump has tried to close off some level of testimony from one of the witnesses in the January 6th criminal investigation that's been being conducted out of Washington by the special counsel's office. This isn't just any witness, though. This is Mike Pence, his former vice president. And so Pence uh, is being subpoenaed to the grand jury. We know that there has already been one judge that said you have to go in and testify. Donald Trump is not going to be able to protect his presidential communications directly with Mike Pence from the criminal investigation. And that follows several losses that Trump has had both at the trial level and at the appeals court level. He tried to cut off answers from others in the vice president's office, two of his top advisors, uh, White House counsel, lawyers, top aides, even cabinet officials. He just keeps losing every time he goes to the appeals court. And so we do have the expectation that this would be very much in line with that. And also, remember, Mike Pence said he's already willing to comply with this subpoena. He's already willing to testify under the judge's ruling so far. He's not appealing anything because he's actually happy with what has happened in this case. Pence is is pretty pleased that he earned some protections around the vice presidency uh, that members of Congress also have, even if he has to show up and talk about conversations where Donald Trump may have been acting corruptly. And Caitlin, if Pence does go forward and ends up testifying to them, obviously it would be incredibly significant. But we've seen so many other former top White House aides who have had to go go before the grand jury because they've lost similar appeals to the one that was just filed. That's right. And what's so I was looking back into the law and the history on this, and this is actually uh, not that unusual of a situation to happen in a criminal investigation. Fifty years ago in the Watergate cases, there basically were judges rulings saying, no, the, the executive branch, the president can't cut out things from a criminal investigation, can't protect presidential secrecy when there is a grand jury need that outweighs it. That held up through the Clinton years uh, through the Clinton administration. And actually, it was very unusual for presidents to even try and claim uh, that they wanted to protect presidential communications like this. And so what Donald Trump is doing is the unusual thing. What the criminal investigators are doing here is pretty much in line uh, with what they've been able to do historically. And they will be getting answers, not just from Mike Pence, but from any of the witnesses where Donald Trump is trying to protect from his administration. Yeah, we'll see what the court decides. Caitlin Polenz, thank you. Tennessee Republicans expelled him, but now a young black lawmaker is back in his seat, back representing his district after the Nashville Metro Council voted unanimously to reinstate him. State Representative Gloria Johnson, one of the Tennessee Three, she'll join us live to discuss what comes next. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. I actually happened to be on the elevator with the representative Bud Holsey who filed the resolution to expel me. 
Um, I, I greeted him and I, I also asked him, did he learn anything, anything from this experience? He said that, you know, you know, it was part of leadership's decision to kind of ask him to file this. And, you know, but besides that was very quiet. But I, I think, you know, the Republicans are in a point of reflection here in Tennessee that what they did, they thought would happen without any resistance. But it has the world watching what's happening here. The Speaker um, of the House is trying to backtrack now. Um, but like I did, I said today, you know, we are calling for his resignation. He is an enemy of democracy and he doesn't deserve to be in that office of a Speaker of the House any longer. A lot of reflection going on all over the country, but especially there in Tennessee. Democratic Representative Justin Jones speaking last night, entering the Tennessee House that you're looking at now. Uh, the chamber, after the National Metro Council voted unanimously to reinstate him on Monday, Jones and his Democratic colleague Justin Pearson were expelled last week for violating decorum during a gun reform protest in the chamber. Gloria Johnson narrowly survived her removal vote and walked in the chamber by Jones's side. I want to welcome the people back to the people's house. The so-called Tennessee Three could be reunited tomorrow when Shelby County commissioners will vote on whether to reinstate Justin Pearson. So joining us now, Tennessee State Representative Gloria Johnson. Thank you, Representative. I appreciate you joining us this morning. As I said to you in the break, because of what happened in Tennessee, but also because of what happened in Kentucky as well. It is all connected. We appreciate you joining us. So you walk back into the chamber arm in arm with your colleague, Justin Jones. What was that moment like for you? It was, it was just, it just felt right. It was so good to have him back in the body, um, overwhelmingly supported by not only his district, but every district in Davidson County. And um, I just, I, I was, I didn't know if that would happen, that he would be back or that there would be any challenge to it. And it was so nice because, because um, both Rep Pearson and Rep Jones's voices are so important in our body. And we just need those young, passionate voices that are willing to fight every step for their constituents and, and put their constituents before lobbyists and corporations. I want to ask you about, you've been very upfront after the vote last week that you felt race played a role in Jones and Pearson's removal. But there are some of your Republican colleagues who are saying the difference was, in their estimation, that it wasn't race, that you argued, your attorney argued to the contrary, uh, that you never shouted or pounded the podium or displayed a sign uh, containing pol a political statement last week and also that you chose not to participate in a letter uh, that their attorneys had submitted, that you, your attorney didn't take part in that letter that you submitted your own. Do you still believe that it was race? And how do you respond to your colleagues who are saying that? Um, you know, I'm, I, I've been sitting in that body for a while. I hear racist statements all the time. And it was just a few weeks ago that one of my colleagues in our criminal justice committee um, we were we had a bill. They have a bill to bring back the firing squad and the electric chair. And one of my colleagues said, I think we should bring back hanging by a tree. Um, he literally suggested lynching. Uh, I, I think it's very clear there. There have been statements in committee for years and um, they've made themselves clear. If you heard the questioning of those two young men compared to my questioning, you definitely heard um, racially tinged questions. It, it's, it's blatant, quite frankly. Representative, do those statements 
make it onto the local media? Would you like to see more coverage? We just did a segment a, a couple of minutes ago about state legislatures not getting the coverage that is warranted and some of these things going on in silos with people doing and saying reprehensible things. Yes, you know, I, I think it's critical that we have our eyes on our state legislature. That's, that's, where, that's where democracy dies. That's where they're attacking because they can in those red states or those supermajority states. And um, we've got to have our eyes on everything that's happening there. Because it is, you know, democracy dies in darkness. And I feel like for a while, Tennessee has had no eyes on what's happening. During COVID, we didn't have a lot of visitors inside the Capitol. And um, people couldn't come if they wanted to come for gun violence bills or, you know, some of those things. It was hard to get people to the Capitol because of COVID. Now that we've opened back up and people are coming in, it's great to have those people's voices in the hallways to remind folks that that's who they work for and not the lobbyists and the special interest groups, which is, I feel like, you know, their bosses. Yeah. Uh, you said democracy dies in darkness. Speaking of democracy, um, Justin Jones has called for a Republican speaker, Tennessee House, uh, the Tennessee's House, uh, Cameron Sexton, to resign, calling him an enemy of democracy. Do you also think... Sexton should resign? Uh, yes. I mean, you know, we had a disgraced speaker right before him, and um, he is doing many of the same things, just not as zealous and openly, I guess. But um, he has limited debate to almost nothing on the House floor. He um, make They make up the rules as they go along, you know, uh, we asked for um, be up to be able to show video, and we were told no video. Then we come in, and the first thing they do is make a motion to have video, and of course they have the votes. So they vote, voted in their video, but we weren't prepared for video because they had already told us no. They change the rules as they go on. There's no debate. Our mics are cut off. Um, we are some most often you know, not called on. The other day when America was watching, we had more healthy debate on bills before those um, before the hearings. We had more healthy debate on bills than I think we've ever had in three years or three or four years on the House floor because people were watching. So because of what happened, it, it, the legislature has been so divided. Do you think that Get, and getting the people's work done, is this going to make it harder or easier moving forward now that this controversy has reached a worldwide audience? You know, that's an interesting question, and I've been asked that question. And um, I'm, I'm hopeful. I'm always hopeful. Uh, but I'm hopeful that they're listening, that they're open, that they realize perhaps, you know, we shouldn't stay with business as usual. We should be a more deliberative body, a more transparent body. And, and I'm going to be hopeful that's going to happen. It, it remains to be seen how they actually handle this, if they use it as a learning experience. Um, hopefully we will know soon by being able to, to deliberate and talk about some of these gun violence, um, uh, gun sense regulations and legislation we want to put in because we want to protect the community. 
you know, I always hear, oh, you know, don't talk about it yet. It's too soon. But if you don't talk about it, what we see is in the very next day or two, we have another horrible incident of gun violence. Yeah. And so we do. The time to talk about it is yesterday because we have got to stop this. And I would hope that my colleagues get on board and help us do something that instead of beefing up security and having tanks at schools, as one of our members suggested, we prevent guns from getting to the schoolhouse door. Because if you're ready for a gunfight at the schoolhouse door, people are going to get hurt. But we can prevent guns from ever coming to the schoolhouse door or, or to, to the bank doors. You know, that's what we want to do. We want to work on prevention. We don't want gun battles at the schoolhouse door. We will be watching what happens in the Tennessee legislature tomorrow when there is a vote for Justin Pearson's reinstatement and beyond. Thank you, Tennessee State Representative Gloria Johnson. We appreciate it. Be well. Thank you. All right, back in Washington, Republican leaders this morning are working overtime to avoid a repeat of what happened in 2022, the losses they saw at the ballot box. We have new scene and reporting ahead. And before we go, a look at the rare Southern California super bloom, the first in four years, thanks to a record amount of rain throughout the year, which has been devastating, but also brought this, creating this sea of beautiful orange poppies. I'd never seen that. This morning, there's new scene and reporting about how Republicans are working behind the scenes to avoid a repeat of what happened in 2022 after several of the candidates who are backed by former President Trump collapsed in the general election, handing Democrats the 51-49 Senate majority that they enjoy now. Republican leaders are now trying to pivot to a hands-on approach to the primaries, actively working on recruitment and vetting to root out weaker candidates that risk setting up a clash with the party's hard-right candidates. CNN's Lauren Fox is live on Capitol Hill with more. Lauren, it's not exactly surprising why they're doing this, given what happened in the 2022 midterms and what they were expecting to happen. The question, I think, is how are they doing this? How does this work with Trump as well? Yeah, I mean, this is the age-old debate in politics always. How involved are you going to get in primary races? And this is something that the National Republican Senatorial Committee is trying to deal with head-on right now, making sure that they are getting involved in candidate recruitment early and often. This reporting coming from our colleagues Manu Raju and Elena Treen as they really pull back the curtain on what the National Republican Senatorial Committee is doing now to ensure that they don't lose in general elections across the country. The 2024 map is really favorable for Republicans. They know that, but they don't want any unforced errors. And Republican leaders feel like they learned their lesson from 2022. Here's Senator John Cornyn, who told my colleagues, quote, it never goes away, talking about that of getting involved in primaries. Republicans need to make up their mind. Do we want to win or do we want to lose? And I think it's that simple. And I think people are tired of losing. Some of the races that Republicans are looking to make sure they get the right candidate in place for are in places like Arizona, places like West Virginia, as well as Pennsylvania. In fact, Carrie Lake met in February. She, of course, the failed gubernatorial candidate in Arizona who ran as a central tenant of her campaign campaign on election fraud claims. And in her meeting, the NRSC officials really tried to encourage her to move away from that message, arguing that that is not the kind of message
message that's going to work in a general election. Caitlin, that's just one example of the way that Republican leaders are trying to get involved early in this race. Yeah, remarkable to hear what Cornyn said. You know, they're tired of losing. Lauren Fox, we'll see if the strategy works. Thank you for that reporting. Let's talk about that with CNN political analyst and national politics reporter for The Times, has said Herndon. He also has a fascinating Times podcast called The Run-Up. Uh, the Kerry Lake uh, meeting is really interesting, yeah. that a lot of sort of upper echelon Republicans think she could be do really well if she were to run for a Senate seat there. But, hey, stay away from some of this election denialism. So if you went to Dana Point, California, yeah. you talk about that on the podcast, to be with those Republicans. What did you learn there? Yeah, at the RNC, it's really this kind of NRSC crowd. This is the Republican establishment really trying to lay down a marker of what it's learned from the 2022 midterms. And that really that really adds up to what Lauren just said, that they say that they learned their lessons and they're trying to impose on the Trump grassroots that they cannot kind of go down the line of election denial. What we had heard from uh, uh, RNC members was that the backward looking nature of election denial didn't speak to Americans. And they were pointing to people like Governor DeSantis, Mike DeWine, people on statewide levels who did better, trying to encourage candidates in 2024 that talked a little more like them and a little less like Donald Trump. But the problem is they don't have control over the base. And so even as the kind of Republican establishment tries to impose a certain sense of messaging on its candidates, these are candidates who have risen by having a conflict with the RNC. Carrie Lake has tried to stoke that conflict with the RNC. And so that's been part of their rise in terms of national prominence. And so you see kind of the top down trying to tell them how they should calibrate their messaging. But they're dealing with uh, uh, candidates who they don't really have full leverage over because part of their political yeah. appeal has been pushing it's back quite a conundrum. Them. Yeah, it's the rock in the hard place. Oh, you just read, but I was just going to say, they're, the old adage, a rock in hard place, they're between that. Listen, and, and yeah. between the old and the new, the sort of more traditional Republican and the sort of outspoken um, hyperbolist, if that's a word, Republican. Even Republican Senator John Cornyn is saying mm -hmm. that GOP infighting in the party establishment and activist base is costing them uh, the majority there admitting that he's sick of it. Here's what he says. He says, uh, it never goes away. Republicans need to make up uh, their mind. Do we want to lose? And I think that's, you know, it's that simple. That people, they're tired of losing, as he said in his thing there. It is. It kind of reminds you of 2020 when Joe Biden was able to convince the Democratic base to focus on electability, to put everything else aside and say, actually, the main priority here is who can beat Donald Trump, and that should be the organizing principle. That is kind of the argument you hear the non-Trump wing of Republicans making right now, is to say, let's move on from the kind of value-driven, uh, 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 grievance-driven politics, and let's focus on the type of candidate that can best beat uh, uh, Joe Biden on the other side. The problem, again, is that Trump has gotten so many people involved in the party. This is one of the things we heard in Dana Point. There's been so much Republican activism. They have transformed the party from the kind of George Bush era of the past. And, that take, and, and there's a lot of Republicans who take real pride in it. And so there's going to be a difficulty for the establishment side of Republicans to really find a message that works on issues like abortion, on issues like guns, issues that have real tension between their activist class and their kind of compromise general election position, while at the same time really satisfying a grassroots base that drives the energy in the primaries and drives the energy for the upcoming presidential election. Because remember, even on stuff, stuff like abortion, you know, Ron DeSantis is currently pushing a six-week abortion ban mm -hmm. in Florida. That would be a, a position that's difficult for a general election. The audience you have to please in the short term is much different than the audience that the Republicans have to think about in the long term. 
Yeah, and look at how Republicans have handled the abortion fight that we're seeing right now with this with this pill, with the ruling from what happened in Texas. A lot of them have been very quiet yeah. on it. Yeah, they, I've heard someone call this the ostrich strategy, you know, sticking your head in the sand. It's not working for Republicans. And I think for Wisconsin was a real wake-up call for them. There's been several of these, right? Ever since the Dobbs decision came down, there was Kansas, there was uh, the results in the midterms. But I think Wisconsin and the margin in Wisconsin mm-hmm. specifically really shook Republicans. Yeah. They are losing both in the suburbs. Uh, these are people who are being persuaded to go vote for Democrats in a big number, big, much bigger numbers than even we saw in Barack Obama's Democratic Party. But they're also losing in terms of Madison and those young people being motivated to come mm-hmm. out. This is a dual problem for them. And, and in places like Wisconsin, which we know is a 50-50 state, if Democrats are outperforming in terms of money and outperforming in terms of a special election, that's real warning signs. When I talked to the leader of the Democratic Party in Wisconsin, he said very clearly, while, this, while the state race was about gerrymandering nationally, it was about abortion locally. That's what they messaged about, and that's what they want on. What drives people to the polls for in the primary, right, mm-hmm. what ignites them doesn't necessarily drive them to the polls in Right. The activists are controlling the primary. The general election's about that compromise position. Thank you, Stead. Thank you. As always. So the Pentagon doing damage control after highly classified military and intelligence documents leaked online. The top Democrat on the House Intelligence Committee warning the leaks could have deadly consequences. More CNN this morning to come after the break. We don't know who's behind this. We don't know what the motive is. And I think I can't remember who asked before, but we don't know what else might be out there. A lot of unknowns this morning as the Biden administration is scrambling to contain and assess a major leak of classified documents from the Pentagon. They've exposed U.S. intelligence on its adversaries and its allies. Congressman Jim Himes, who is the top Democrat on the House Intelligence Committee, said, quote, anything that points to sources and methods carries the very real risk that those sources and methods go away. That can mean people being killed. That can mean technologies being shut down. And that translates to bad outcomes on the battlefield. Joining us now is former Defense Secretary under former President Trump, Mark Esper. Secretary Esper, I mean, how devastating is something of this kind of a magnitude where they don't know yet if it's even been contained? Yeah, it's pretty bad, Caitlin. And you're right. We don't know how big or how bad it can get. I mean, you look at, at the tactical level, it affects the, what happens on the ground between Russia and Ukraine. At the strategic level, it, it affects our ability uh, to get more information. It affects our, re, our, our uh, sources and methods. And then you have a political level between us and our allies and, and what it means about the relationship there. And then finally, it does impact confidence within the United States government itself between departments and people about our ability to keep secrets. I think it was striking how much uh, we heard from uh, John Kirby yesterday. We heard a little bit of it there saying how much they don't know. They don't even know if it's over Mm -hmm. at this point. And you dealt with not the same thing, but similar leaks. It was 2020. You were, you know, defense secretary. This was about Russia information that Russians had had paid militants in Afghanistan to kill U.S. troops. But can you just speak to having helmed one of those investigations and how important it is to know what you don't know? Right. Well, we, we launched an investigation in the summer of 2020, and it was it was a variety of issues. It was operational deployment issues. It was, uh, you know, other matters. And it, it, it went on for months and months to, to kind of ferret this out and find out 
where it was coming from, who, why, what. And even by the time I left office, the investigation still wasn't concluded after six plus months. So it's going to take some time, mm -hmm. uh, I, I fear, to get to the bottom of this. And meanwhile, we have war happening in Ukraine and, and hopefully soon a counteroffensive by the Ukrainians themselves yeah. against Russia. The question always is, is why? Is a point just to destabilize? Who knows? I mean, I think that is a big question. It seems in recent years, it's often been people who disagree with policy. That was my experience at the Pentagon or or have a different view about how America is acting the world. If you look at the I think the Snowden and, and the Manning cases, those were two examples. Uh, but we, we don't know until we know. Look, we have to find out. Is it an American? Is it somebody else? Is it both? Uh, these are big unanswered questions that we need to get to the bottom of and quickly. How many people have have access to these kinds of documents? How hard is it going to be to narrow it down? You know, when, when we first opened up the investigation I launched in uh, 2020, I thought it was a few dozen. It quickly became hundreds and then eventually in the thousands. Uh, wow. it, it depends on how much it was released. In this mm -hmm. case, we, we know that it, it, the information was shared with foreign partners. So, I, again, I don't think we know the scope of this problem. And... Um, it will take a while to determine that. The Washington Post has uh, exclusive reporting on some of the information they say from this, this leak, including one of America's closest allies, a recipient of a lot of U.S. aid, by the way, Egypt, uh, recently ordering subordinates to produce up to 40,000 rockets shipped to Russia. What did you think when you read that? Yeah, look, it's very interesting. Uh, e Egypt has had a uh, an arms relationship with, with, if you will, with Russia for decades. I was troubled by it as Secretary of Defense because we give them over a billion dollars a year in, in assistance. Right. And to see them turn around and then use their own uh, currency to buy Russian arms was troubling for me. And this is just another, you know, another example of uh, of, of a par so-called partner dealing with the Russians. Now, we don't know whether it's true or not, so we need right. to get to the bottom of that. And I think this will be an right. oversight question for Congress. Right. And Egypt's response has been... Our response has been based on non-involvement. That's Stay the word they use. Yeah. A major question for Congress and also, you know, what this means going forward if these documents were altered, if it's accurate. Secretary Esper, thank you for your insight on all of this this morning. No, thank you all. Louisville, Kentucky, another city in America, and it is morning like so many this morning. Five people murdered in a mass shooting at a bank. We're live on the ground as we get new data on the prevalence of gun violence in America. Our city is heartbroken, heartbroken for the loss of friends and loved ones. We must work together to end this plague of gun violence on our country. Enough. That is the mayor of Louisville. Good morning, everyone. The nation once again reeling from another mass shooting this morning. Coming up, we are learning about the suspected gunman who killed five co-workers at a bank in Louisville. We're going to get to that. Plus, there is a new report that a key U.S. ally was secretly planning to supply Russia with rockets. That's according to a top secret document that leaked from the Pentagon. And a federal appeals court has a big decision to make on a widely used abortion pill. Also this morning, we're learning new details about that gunman that we noted there who went into a bank yesterday and killed five of his former co-workers. We just spoke to the interim police chief who revealed that the shooter had recently purchased the gun that he used in yesterday's massacre. A law enforcement source is also telling CNN the gunman had recently been notified he was going to be fired from that bank. 
and that he left a note for his parents and a friend indicating he was going to open fire, what he was going to do. Then a heavily armed SWAT team served a search warrant at the shooter's home. Here's the video of the moment that they entered the house with their guns drawn. The interim police chief told us that she hopes that the items they recovered inside will help them learn more about the motive behind this shooting. CNN's Adrian Broadus is live in Louisville. Adrian, obviously still a lot of questions uh, about this suspected, about this shooter here, about, you know, the access to this gun that we are told by the interim police chief this morning was recently purchased. What more are you learning there on the ground? Well, the chief, as you know, Caitlin, didn't say whether or not any other search warrants were executed. And that will, if there were, possibly give a clearer picture. She did tell us about that officer who was sworn in less than two weeks ago. She says he's still critical, but in stable condition. And we're talking about Nicholas Witt. One thing we know, that shooter killed five of his colleagues here at this bank in downtown Louisville. Among the five deceased, the youngest was a 40-year-old father of two, and the oldest was a 64-year-old. A source close to this investigation tells us the gunman left a note for his parents and a friend indicating that he had planned to carry out a shooting at the workplace. Now, it's unclear when or where that note was discovered. We do know the shooter, who was 25, started as an intern before becoming a full-time employee. As you mentioned, this shooter got information that he was going to be terminated. That could possibly help paint a clearer picture. But one thing that is clear, members of law enforcement responded within three minutes of that first 911 call. And when the interim chief addressed the officers, she thanked them for showing up. And she also said to them, and I'm paraphrasing here, if we don't do it, who will? And that's something that a lot of folks have been talking about here in town, the bravery of those officers, especially knowing Officer Wilt is still fighting for his life. Yeah, and the idea that he just graduated from the police academy, I guess now it's 12 days ago, he was sworn in actually by the interim police chief. What more are they saying about his condition as he is in the hospital? The interim chief told us his condition is still critical but stable. We heard from doctors yesterday who said the next 24 hours would be critical, not only for Officer Wilt, but the other victims who were injured and the victims who were in critical condition when it comes to determining their outcome. But we do know his road to recovery will be long. Caitlin? Yeah, it certainly will be. And also we're thinking of those who, who lost their lives yesterday. Tommy Elliott, Josh Barrett, Jim Tut Jr., Juliana Farmer, and Deanna Eckert. Adrian Broadus, thank you so much for being there on the ground. We want to bring to you now this just released new data on the prevalence of gun violence in America. According to a new survey from the Kaiser Family Foundation, about one in five adults say they have witnessed someone get shot. Had a family member or who was killed with a gun? or have personally been threatened at gunpoint. Senior security correspondent Josh Campbell joins us now with more. Josh, this, this eye-opening, eye-popping, really, these are shocking numbers. What else does this sh survey show us? 
Yeah, Don, I mean, as if we needed further proof that gun violence poses a public health crisis in this country, this new survey data really paints a bleak picture. And it's important to note that this didn't ask respondents, what do you think of gun control? It asked, how are guns impacting your lives now? Let's take a look at some of the data here and uh, some of the overwhelming findings. You can see that over half of those who were surveyed said that they have been impacted by a gun-related incident, either themselves personally or a family member. One in five, 20% of Americans surveyed had a family member who was killed by a gun, either by homicide, suicide, or accidentally. And that is, you know, as we get into uh, the mindset of people in this country, 84% have actually taken at least one precaution to protect themselves or their families from gun violence. And as we look at communities of color and its impact, it's even more unsettling as you look at the survey data. 31% of black adults and 22% of Hispanic adults have actually witnessed someone being shot shot. 34% of black adults have had family members killed by a gun. That number, Don, is twice of that of the white Americans who were surveyed. And again, getting into the psyche, the mindset of the public, one in five of black and Hispanic adults in America say that they live in fear of gun violence as a, quote, constant threat. Just truly, truly unsettling figures in this new study, Don. Josh, I'm interested to hear about this. You had a chance to sit down with a medical expert who laid out the impact guns have on children. Tell me about that. Yeah, that's right. You know, the American Academy of Pediatrics recommends that to the extent it's allowed by law, that physicians talk to their patients, talk to uh, parents of their patients about gun safety, how guns are stored. And you can see from this new Kaiser family study why that's so important. Take a look at this figure. A whopping 75 percent of gun owners who were surveyed said that they don't store, store their guns safely, that their storage practices actually run counter to common gun safety practices, such as keeping your firearm locked, keeping it unlocked loaded. And I talked to one physician who said that every pediatrician that he knows has treated a firearm-related injury, which is why it's so important that parents take gun safety very seriously. Have a listen. Guns are the leading cause of death in children and adolescents in the United States. About a third of children in the U.S. live in a household that has a gun. So it's really important that pediatricians talk to families and make sure that they're storing their guns safely, having it kept safely locked away with the ammunition stored separately, because in an instant, a child can get a hold of a gun and have a life-threatening injury or lose their life altogether. Now, some hospitals, such as Boston's Mass General for Children, have actually instituted novel training programs to get their residents used to routinely asking parents and patients about gun safety practices. But of course, Don, doctors alone can't solve this problem. If you have a gun, you should be storing it safely. And at least according to the staggering new data from the Kaiser Family Foundation, that is simply not happening on a wide, a wide scale. All right. Josh Campbell, thank you so much. President Biden condemning the latest mass shooting, calling on Republicans in Congress to do something, take action on gun violence. It is a message he's repeated a lot, mass shooting after mass shooting. As a nation, we owe these families more than our prayers. We owe them action. So I again call on Congress to pass the assault weapons ban. Enough. Do something. We remember and mourn today, but I'm here with you today to act. It's a family's worst nightmare. It's happening far too often in this country. We have to do something to stop gun violence ripping apart our communities. Let's bring in Democratic Senator Chris Murphy of Connecticut. He was a key negotiator in the previous bipartisan gun talks, keeps reintroducing legislation for universal background checks. Uh, Senator, thank you very much for being with us this morning. You know, 
The fact that guns are the leading cause of death in American children now, more than car accidents, the fact that the number of gun uh, deaths for kids is up 50 percent from 2019 to 2021. But a lot of your Republican colleagues have said in recent weeks, we've done what we're going to do on guns. So is that what we should tell our kids? We can't um, because our kids are growing up um, with a devastating, crippling fear um, that um, we have delivered to them by choice, right? No other kids in any other high-income nation uh, worry about whether they're going to survive their day at school or survive their walk to school. I mean, you frankly can't quantify um, the threat to our kids just by the number of kids who die. Um, I live in you know, a neighborhood in Hartford, Connecticut that has a high rate of gun violence. I have a group of young uh, seventh and eighth graders that I meet with every now and again just to hear from them what they want me to be working on. Um, their number one concern is mm -hmm. their walk to and from school. School for them is actually the safe place. For them, they worry for their lives when they're outside their home in their neighborhood. That kind of trauma, um, it, it frankly biologically changes the brains of these kids because they're living through trauma that's uh, you know similar to what a soldier goes through when they deploy overseas. And it's no coincidence that in these violent neighborhoods, you have these underperforming schools because the exposure to trauma and violence is literally ruining these kids' ability to learn and adapt. So this epidemic, um, the scope of it is so much bigger than just the numbers, 100 plus people dying per day. We are literally losing a generation of kids in yeah. some neighborhoods. And of course, the answer is not to stand pat and do nothing. Of course, we should be continuing to try to find common ground, try to find the ways that we can work together, Republicans and Democrats, to make our laws um, reflect what the American public want, which is criminals and people with mental illness not having access to these very dangerous weapons. Senator, listen, with all due respect, I'm not contradicting anything that you're saying, but I think you'll agree every time there's a shooting, right? You say what you say. Many others say the same thing. We have to do something. We have to do something. And then virtually nothing gets done. There's a little bit of movement with the Biden administration with some of the moves uh, that were some of the things that they got passed, but not enough, nearly enough, as we see what's happening. I was interested. Listen, the, the real question is, so then what happens? Is there room for what happens? You tweeted this just yesterday. You said, if guns made us safer... America would be the safest place in the world. But the opposite is true. Nowhere else do students, concert goers, and bank patrons get slaughtered on a daily basis because, as it turns out, it's all the guns that make us so unsafe. So having said that, then, what gives? What is it going to take to get your Republican colleagues to go along for, for some bi bipartisanship and something to be done? So listen, I, I think we have to acknowledge that last year we passed the first bipartisan gun safety legislation in 30 years. For 30 years, from 1994 until 2022, the gun industry owned Washington. And last summer, we passed a legislation that makes five major changes to American gun laws. One of the things it does is put a waiting period on every under 21 buyer in this country so that you can't have a situation like we had in Uvalde where a young person in crisis goes to a gun store, buys a gun and uses it days later. That makes this country safe. 
safer. But it also suggests that we have seen a paradigm shift in this country, that now Republicans see the anti-gun violence movement as being more powerful than the gun lobby. And so I know my Republican colleagues, fresh off of that bipartisan bill, say they're not ready for uh, more bipartisan compromise. Uh, but I think the pressure is on. I think parents and kids all across this country are not going to allow for an action. You really think there's been a paradigm the shift? The rest of this year, bipartisan area of compromise. I do. I absolutely do. I think today the gun safety movement is at least as powerful as the gun lobby, if not more powerful. We would not have passed that legislation last summer if that were not the case. And I get it. We're only nine months since the passage of the biggest bipartisan gun safety legislation in 30 years. Republicans are not exactly jumping at the opportunity to take on the NRA again. But I think it's just a matter of time before we find that common ground again. Senator, you're also on the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, and if you look at the newspapers today, that is the other major headline, which is this massive leak of documents from the Pentagon that reveal the U.S., how it's spying on its allies, its blunt assessments of what's happening in Ukraine that don't necessarily match up with what we've heard publicly from officials. How concerned are you about the idea that what we're hearing from the White House and the Pentagon right now is they don't really even know if this leak is contained as of today? Yeah, listen, I'm very concerned about this leak. Um, obviously, we have adversaries who are constantly probing uh, at classified information and have uh, experience in releasing that information as a way to embarrass the United States. I haven't received any you know, independent briefing on the extent of the leak nor on the substance of some of these leaks. And so I'm trying to avoid the trap of you know, getting in the business of criticizing the administration about um, unverified information that has been leaked potentially by an adversary or somebody who's seeking to hurt the United States. But uh, clearly, this is a growing problem. The ability of our adversaries uh, to be able to get confidential or classified information and leak it as a means of embarrassing uh, United States government leaders or candidates. It's something I think we're going to have to grapple with in a very serious way going forward. Do you know when you'll get that briefing? Do you want a briefing? No, absolutely. I mean, I, I, I want a briefing on the logistics, right, on how this information got out there. But I, we also need to get briefings on the substance. Obviously, you referenced uh, information that suggests one of our chief allies, Egypt, uh, was considering or was planning to ship weapons to uh, Russia. If, if that's the case, um, then it also begs the question, you know, why wasn't Congress, why weren't leaders of the Foreign Relations mm -hmm. Committee given that information? But uh, I have not received that briefing yet from uh, the administration. We, as you know, have been uh, away from Washington for the last two weeks. Yeah, especially given all the money the U.S. sends to Egypt. Uh, well, let us know when you do get that briefing, Senator. We appreciate your time this morning. Thanks. Thank you, Senator. All right. In just a few hours, President Biden is going to leave the White House for his other home, his ancestral home, first to Northern Ireland and then to Ireland later this week, where he is going to help commemorate the 25th anniversary of the Good Friday Agreement. The peace deal that was brokered by the U.S. helped bring an end to decades of sectarian violence. But ahead of the president's visit, masked men were seen here throwing Molotov cocktails at police during a pro-Irish march on Monday. CNN's Phil Mattingly is live from Belfast in Northern Ireland. Phil, it's obviously a homecoming for President Biden, but what are, what are the goals of this trip? What's this actually going to look like once he's there on the ground? 
Yeah, it's, it's deeply personal. There's no question about that. Let's start with the front of mind issue, which is I forgot my raincoat in my room and our good friend Ali Malloy is very disappointed uh, in how I've dropped the ball to start this trip. It's certainly something the president is going to try and avoid on several levels. And I think to be more serious about things, while certainly the Irish portion of this trip, going to Ireland, going to County Louth, going to County Mayo, the deep familial connections of which the White House has produced a document that's about eight or nine pages long that lays out just how many ways the president and his family is connected to Ireland. His first stop here in Northern Ireland is critical. It comes the day after the 25th anniversary of the Good Friday Agreement, agreement that unquestionably underscored the importance of U.S. engagement in diplomacy and peace talks, unquestionably has led to a level of stability and peace that did not exist in the decades prior, and yet still underscores, as you noted at the top, and with those pictures you were seeing from what was happening in Derry, that there is still so much work to be done. And when the president arrives later this evening, he will be greeted uh, by the UK Prime Minister. Tomorrow he'll give a speech at Ulster University, notably to students, to young people, not to the political leaders of a power-sharing government that has only sporadically been functioning over the course of the last several years. And at the core of those remarks will be the idea of economic development. His special envoy to Northern Ireland for economic development, Joseph Kennedy, will be here as well, talking about the fact that for all they believe they've achieved and accomplished and gained over the course of the last 25 years because of that agreement, there's so much work to be done, work that the the U.S. can certainly help on on the economic front. And then, of course, Caitlin, as you know, having listened to every number of President Biden's speeches that he quotes Irish poets, it will be a very deeply personal <laughs> visit to Ireland over the course of those days ahead. Yeah, it will. And real, Phil, first rule of every foreign trip is you bring a raincoat. <laughs> yeah. No, I failed. I failed. <laughs> Allie's judging me, Caitlin. <laughs> she is in a good way, though, of course. All right, Phil Mattingly, we'll check back in with you in a raincoat a little bit. Yes. <laughs> it is a, it's a waterproof suit, though, I'm told. I'm being told. <laughs> From a source. From a source. All right, so NASCAR indefinitely suspending one of its star drivers after he was charged with assault by strangulation. Mm. The details ahead. Also a live look now at Tulsa, Oklahoma, where reparations talks begin today, focusing on the generational trauma from the 1921 massacre in the Greenwood neighborhood, also known as Black Wall Street. And Tulsa's not alone. We have had enough talk. Now is the time for us to act. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. Welcome back. Well, news this morning that the mother of a six-year-old boy in Virginia who shot his first grade teacher in January, that mother is now charged with felony child neglect. Police say her son took a loaded gun to his Newport News school and shot teacher Abby Zwerner, sending her to the hospital with wounds to her chest and her hand. She has recently filed a law school against the school board and administrators. Brian Todd has been following this since the beginning and joins us now. What can you tell us about the mother, what happened and led to these charges? Well, Poppy, this is a very significant turn in this case, not only with the new charges filed, but this is the first time we're learning the identity of this boy's mother. Deja Taylor is her name. She's just been indicted, charged with felony child neglect and with recklessly leaving a loaded firearm so as to endanger a child. That is a misdemeanor. Her attorney, James Ellison, corresponded with me last night over email. He did not comment specifically on the charges, but he did say that Deja Taylor will be turning herself in later this week. Now, last month, the Commonwealth's attorney told us that Taylor's six-year-old son, who shot teacher Abby Zwerner in that first grade classroom on January 6th, that he will not be charged in this case. Deja Taylor's lawyer previously had told CNN that the boy's parents claimed they kept their gun 
uh, at their home secured and that the gun was secured with a safety and kept on the top shelf of the mother's bedroom closet. A lawsuit filed last week by the teacher, Abby's Werner, claims that the six-year-old had been violent at home, that he had choked a teacher during the previous school year when he was in kindergarten, that also in kindergarten he had touched a female class, classmate inappropriately on the school playground, and that school administrators were aware of all of this. Poppy. Do, do you know or is there an indication if they're going to file charges against anyone else here? Well, it's certainly a possibility that school administrators could face criminal charges, Poppy, but the Commonwealth's really? attorney, Howard Gwynn, has not commented on that so far. Diane Toscano, the attorney for the teacher, issued a statement to CNN last yeah. night on the news of the charging in the mother. Here's the part of that statement, quote, there were failures in accountability at multiple levels that led to Abby being shot and almost killed. Today's announcement addresses but one of those failures. It has been three months of investigation and still so many unanswered questions remain. Poppy, the, uh, the lawyers for that teacher are uh, claiming that these administrators broke Virginia state law when they ignored all the warnings about yeah. this child. Wow. Brian Todd, thank you for following this. Sure. Also this morning, we're tracking this. NASCAR suspending Cup Series driver Cody Ware indefinitely after he was arrested in North Carolina and charged with what we are told is assault by strangulation, inflicting serious injury and a misdemeanor charge of assault on a female. Ware was released on a $3,000 bond after his arrest. He's been driving since 2017 for Rick Ware Racing, which is the team that is owned by his father. He currently sits 31st in the championship standings, and the team says that he missed Sunday's cup race to, quote, focus on a personal matter. Happening today, a community group in Oklahoma is set to begin talks on possible reparations for the 1921 Tulsa Race Massacre. The group says it will hand over recommendations to the city council after a series of discussions, but nothing is binding. The talks come as city officials across the country are wrestling with how to make amends for slavery. Evanston, Illinois, is the first city in America to offer some of its black residents money, $25,000. And the reparations task force in San Francisco is proposing a lot more, $5 million each. Sinan's Nick Watt joins us now with more. Nick, good morning to you. Explain, please. Well, good morning, Don. Listen, the vast majority of us can agree that terrible wrongs have been done to black Americans. But when you get into the detail of whether and how we should try to make amends, it gets more complicated and contentious. Now, this task force in San Francisco has spent nearly two years coming up with what is still a draft report. So we don't yet know exactly how many people would qualify or exactly how much it would cost. But it's clear it would cost a lot. We have had enough talk. Now is the time for us to act. Perhaps giving black people $5 million lump sums and a guaranteed minimum income for at least the next 250 years. Those are numbers one and two and the most headline grabbing of 111 draft recommendations made to San Francisco's leaders who sound enthusiastic. I'm proud to be an ally in this and you can count on me in this fight. California was never a slave state, but says the committee that made this list, slavery stain exists here, that black San Franciscans have been brutalized by the police and barred from the best healthcare, jobs, education, and neighborhoods. Willie Mays, giant uh, 
major star was unable to buy a home in St. Francis because of neighborhood covenants, and it was this highly publicized events. He's just one of many people. Thriving black neighborhoods were largely destroyed in the 1960s under the guise of urban development. There were 10,000 plus people that were displaced. 90% of them were black. And these families, unfortunately, were not able to pass the wealth of their home ownership over to their children, to their grandchildren. Yes, many people of all colors have been priced out of this picturesque tech capital, but black people more than most. How far does this take us towards righting a wrong? It will give people equal opportunity like you've had. These draft recommendations cover health, housing, the law, education, job creation, business development, all overshadowed by that five million. There, there's no analysis. There's no formula they came up with. Okay, what are the damages? How do we uh, compensate for them? They just picked a number out of a hat. I have black and white friends who look at that $5 million and say that is insanity. I think if I did not live in San Francisco, I probably would look at $5 million like that's an insane amount of money. The reality of owning property here, $5 million is not that far-fetched. That's how much Redfin estimates this house is now worth once it was owned by Aliyah Dun Salahuddin's grandmother. We were forced to leave San Francisco because we didn't have the resources or the funds to keep the property that had been in our family for decades. How do you possibly fund something like that? We'll look at the recommendations, work together as leadership of the city and see what's feasible and come up with some ways to garner resources. How could you possibly come up with that much money? I don't want to sit here and be like asked and answered, but like I answered your question and that's my final answer. To qualify under the draft, got to be 18 plus, identify as black African-American and meet at least two other criteria, among them displaced by urban renewal between 54 and 73. There won't be thousands of people getting $5 million, you know, in a year's time. But I imagine that there will be some money going out the door. Some places where we could see that is the list of people who were displaced from housing. Some say no one should qualify. Are you responsible for the sins of your ancestors? If we're going to sit down and have the conversation, I need to hear the answer to that that's really persuasive. And you haven't heard that? No, yet. no, I'm afraid I haven't. Cheryl Davis has been getting messages from all over. The things that you think would no longer still be said, where you call people monkeys or you tell people to go back to Africa or you say, you know, get up off your lazy butt and, and work. People are saying that. Yeah. I really do hope all of us in city leadership, especially with these attacks, speak up loud and clear and proud um, in defense of and support um, of the reparations advisory committee's recommendations and make them happen as soon as possible. Now, the final report from that task force is due in June. Then the supervisors and the mayor would have to vote. This might also go out to the voters. It might go on the ballot. One member tells me that that five million figure will stay. Um, and I'm also told to expect legal challenges. Yeah. Dom. Hey, hey, Nick, can I just ask you something real quick? Do you think municipalities and cities all over the country are watching what happens here? Because that is the whole idea about reparations. It's not I just like giving so. people money. It's about um, people of color, especially not having the opportunity to build generational wealth as white yeah. Americans have been able to. 
Yeah, listen, the people in San Francisco say we are hoping to provide a model for the rest of the country, but they make it clear we're not providing a model in terms of that dollar figure. They make it very clear that that dollar figure is specific to San Francisco because it is such a ridiculously expensive city. But yes, they are hoping this will be a model, a beacon that the rest of the country can look to and take from and use and follow. Guys, Nick Watt, thank you. Thanks. Also, a new study this morning shows that Americans are finding it's actually more difficult to borrow money. What is the impact? Why is this happening? How long could it last? We have none other than the Shark Tank finance expert, Uh-oh. Kevin O'Leary. He is here live. Uh-oh. Shark-infested waters in the studio. Okay, so if you take a look right there on your screen, that is one Miss Poppy Harlow over there getting ready to interview her Yale law professor, who also happens to be the former special counsel to the president about what's next in the legal fight over abortion pills. That is coming up, so stay tuned for that. But first, your money this morning. Americans are having a harder time borrowing money. A survey conducted by the New York Federal Reserve Bank found that nearly 60% of Americans say it is harder to obtain credit than a year ago. That is the highest level since it began crunching the numbers in 2013. At the same time, consumers say inflation is going to be worse, not better, in the year ahead. Let's hope, hopefully there's some good news in this interview. Joining me now <laughs> is the chairman of O'Leary Ventures and Shark Tank judge, Kevin O'Leary, a.k.a. Mr. Wonderful. Yeah, Thank a lot you. of names. Yeah, a lot of names and a lot of hats, right? I like a.k.a. That's, a, that's A.k.a. So think, listen, um, you deal a lot with small businesses um, as an investor. As a CEO, what are you telling me? Why is it so hard? Why is it so much tougher now to borrow money? It's all happened in the last two weeks. What, what's in the last two weeks? Yeah. I mean, we survey our CEOs. We go over 50 investments in private companies in almost every state, almost every geography in America. And we're constantly in contact with them and obviously financing, particularly receivables. When you're a small business doing 50 million, maybe you have 100 employees, you have 60 to 90 days of your sales tied up in receivables with big box retailers, maybe, or wherever else they're selling to. We used to be able to factor that, it's called. In other words, borrow against those, those receivables at around 7 to 9%. Today, that has gone from 17 to 39% wow. in two weeks. And so the reason that happens, very simple, Silicon Valley Bank. Sent a shockwave through all the regional banks that do a lot of this factoring or hedge funds or private equity firms, and money is tight, and it's really hard to borrow now. Yeah, well, and Jamie Dimon was talking to Poppy last week in that interview, and he was talking about interest rates staying higher for longer as his prediction. Yeah, I think he's right. I think inflation, I think the Fed will raise another 25 basis points in the May meeting. Here's the thing, though. The effect of this drying up of, of uh, capital to small business has not been shown up yet in the CPI data. So I would, I would put up my hand up to the Fed and say, let's pause. Let's wait and see the effect of this drying up of liquidity. And also, let's wait and see what the data says about rent, because it's rolling over. Rents are down in most cities that are not, not coastal, coastal cities. By 20%. Yeah, but you don't think that the Fed is going to do what you say. You no, don't they, think they're going to take a pause. I come finally to the place where I would put up my hand and say, wait, pause. Let's just wait. Wait 60 days. But I don't think they're going to do that. They're probably going to raise another 25 basis points. Can we? Yeah, go on. No, go ahead, because I have an idea or something that I want to bring up. <laughs> well, I was going to talk about the regional banks. You're saying this all happened with SVB, and that, is that, what you're, is that yep. your idea as well? Um, is it, the regional banks, are you saying there is, is there more of a need for regional banks? Is this, or is there well, less we, of a need? We, because we've had this ongoing dialogue together right here at this week. desk. 
And I'm arguing that we'll now move to super regionals because the, the small guys will not be able to attract. What is that? In other words, do we really need 3,000 small banks in America? No. Maybe we get by with 1,000 small banks and the major money center banks. The, but all I'm saying is let the market be the market. It doesn't matter what I say. It what matters what the market says because I personally, and I can assure you that there are millions like me, do not want to guarantee every single account in every tiny bank because some percentage of them are run by idiots. I'm sorry I said that, but it's true. Well, and some percentage of big banks are run by idiots. That's too, true, but let the market that? be the market. It's let the market be the market. If an idiot is running a bank, they will be forced out of that position, and we should not be forced to guarantee every tiny bank. Here's the problem, and I, pu I pursued you on this last time we were talking. Where would you put your own money today now that you know that these regional banks are so unstable? We disagree on this fundamentally because I, I think small banks are important. And what Only I was gonna... because you think you have an imputed guarantee up to 250000 and I'm saying I'm not giving that to you anymore, and so is the rest of America. Well, it is. You are giving it to me, though. It is still in place. Well, they I'm not gotten, okay with they it. They haven't gotten rid of that yet. I, under, I understand that. But to the point about small banks is what Jamie Dimon was saying in this interview with Poppy is saying that he thinks they're important because it's a community branch. People can go it. Let me say why. People can go in. They feel more comfortable going into a bank that they know, that is run by people they know, and a town that they know. They can learn more kumbaya, about their finances. Kumbaya, it's not kumbaya. You, you, someone learns more about let's their finances. About, let's talk about Jamie Diamond. What do you think he's going to say? He's got to talk his book. He's getting billions of dollars coming in every week. I'm part of that. I've moved a bunch of money to J.P. Morgan because it's safer than a small bank. And he's got to say, oh, I've got to support the small guys because they're important. He's talking his book. He's doing he's saying the right thing because frankly those banks aren't going to be around in 24 months that's my opinion. Did you hear what I was whistling? Yes, Kumbaya. No, I was whistling the Andy Griffith show, Mayberry. <laughs> <laughs> We'll continue this saga of disagreeing <laughs> over small banks. Poppy, did you want to get in on this? I would just say, hi, Kevin. I would just say that, you know, everyone should read Jamie's annual letter that came out about a week ago talking about how we need a healthy banking system writ large, right? Yes, J.P. Morgan got assets from this, but we need a healthy banking system writ large. I'll see you <laughs> next She's going to say it, but you don't get to respond. Look at that. Thanks, Kevin. Thank you, Kevin. A major legal battle over an abortion pill is underway, and women across the nation could lose access from that. Just days from now, the Justice Department is stepping in. That's ahead. We have new developments just into CNN and the mass shooting at the bank in Louisville, Kentucky, that happened yesterday and left five people dead. The mayor's office is now telling CNN this morning they hope to release 911 audio of calls made later today and also that they have seen the surveillance video and said, quote, it's clear the initial responding officers immediately engaged the shooter. They maintain that officers saved lives, saying there were other people at the building at the time that they arrived. We'll have more for you on that in a moment. Meantime, the Department of Justice, along with the manufacturer of abortion medication, has asked a federal appeals court, the Fifth Circuit, to put on hold a Texas judge's ruling that could block access to the drug mifepristone across the country. DOJ lawyers argue Judge Kaczmarek's ruling had, quote, upended decades of reliance by blocking the FDA's approval of mifepristone and depriving patients of access to the safe, effective treatment based on the court's own misguided assessment of the drug's Safety. In its filing Monday, the government asked the Fifth Circuit to stay Kaczmarek's order until this case goes through the process. And it looks like it's going to be fast-tracked to the Supreme Court. With us now is Abby Gluck, professor of law and faculty director of the Solomon Center for Health Law and Policy at Yale Law School. She's also professor 
at Yale Medical School, and she served as special counsel to President Biden and special counsel to the White House COVID-19 response team. And full disclosure, was my professor last year in law school, civil procedure, statutory interpretation, the hardest exam I've ever taken. <laughs> Thank you very much. But I just thought of you because you're perfect in terms of your health background and your legal background. So why does it matter and why did DOJ appeal this? Thanks, Poppy. It's great to see you. Good to be here. Um, it's incredibly important that DOJ appeal this case. So, first of all, um, this case is an unprecedented ruling by a lower court judge that substituted his own judgment for the FDA's expert judgment that this drug was safe and effective. This ruling has enormous implications for mifeprestone, the abortion medication, and that's so important. But it also has implications for the entire spectrum of FDA review. It's essential that DOJ take this ruling all the way up through the appellate process, even to the Supreme Court if necessary, to reverse the lower court ruling, which could really cripple FDA review. So for Democrats and some Republicans like Nancy Mace, who said on this program yesterday, just ignore it. You're saying, no, this has to go through the legal steps. Yeah, I mean, there's a process here. So... On the one hand, if you just ignore the ruling, you're sort of acknowledging that it exists and you're not actually fighting it, and the FDA shouldn't do that. And after we follow through the entire spectrum of appeal, there'll be time and room, if the rule of law does not get upheld, for the Biden administration to open its toolkit and make sure the drug is effective. Because you worked so closely with the Biden administration in the White House as special counsel to the president on these medical issues of COVID-19, what really can the Biden administration do here? If the courts, if the Fifth Circuit doesn't go in their way, or if it goes to the Supreme Court, they don't go their way, what can the Biden administration do? Because this looks like the first time a judge has ever ordered the FDA to pull something from the shelves that has been deemed safe for more than two decades. Yeah, let me just back up. It is an unprecedented ruling. It is the first time that a federal judge has substituted his own independent judgment or his own judgment for the expertise of the FDA, right? So the first thing the Biden administration has to do is it has to get this ruling reversed. We cannot have cases where people are allowed to challenge drugs 20 years after they've been approved, when they've been shown safe as effective, and get pulled off the market. It would completely undermine the entire pharmaceutical legitimacy of the prevail, pharmaceutical market. Right. What, li literally, like the Fifth Circuit's going to be a challenge, no? Right. If you, okay, so God forbid we get to the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court does not uphold, uh, does not reverse the case, as I think it will, because the case has a lot of flaws and we can talk about some of the flaws and the plaintiffs don't have um, sufficient concrete injury. They're suing 23 years late, way past the statute of limitations. But then the Biden administration has options. Um, People talk about uh, exercising enforcement discretion. They talk about reapproving the drug. But I just want to say that's incredibly premature because okay. you don't want to have this precedent on the books for any drug, right? So it's important as mifeprestone is. We really need to think about this in the big picture of the legitimacy of the okay. FDA. So let's just finally take this to if it does go to the Supreme Court. Because right now, the case that Judge Kaczmarek ruled on was a statutory case, Right. But if it goes to the Supreme Court, constitutional questions will come into play, right? The Supremacy Clause, uh, the Commerce Clause, et cetera. But Dobbs overturning Roe versus Wade told us, that court told us, the majority, states' rights. This is the opposite of that. Right. So this case is a statutory case in the sense that it goes to the authority of the FDA and our deference to their expert judgment. When it gets to the Supreme Court, it's going to be inevitably linked to Dobbs, which is the case that overruled Roe versus Wade, where the court said, as you said, that we're leaving the abortion decision to the states. And in the Supreme Court, the court is going to have to ask, does this decision, which does the opposite, which issues an injunction against the entire provision of the right. pill for the whole country, um, does that conflict with what the court understood to be the landscape it was setting forth in the could, Dobbs could case? Could the court do that? Could, I mean, overrule essentially what they 
They make an opposite argument of Dobbs. Well, I think it's sort of apples and oranges because in this case, we're talking about a statutory, in this case, we're talking about a statutory ruling. So what the court is going to be focusing on in this case is whether we want any federal court on any issue, on any drug, substituting their expert scientific judgment for the FDA. It's going to have implications for the Dobbs ruling, right. but it's not going to be on the same legal terms. So broad. Professor Gluck, thank you very much. Thanks for having me. We'll be right back. An incredible save in the final seconds by Wrexham's AFC's Ben Foster. That is the Welsh soccer club owned by actors Ryan Reynolds and Rob McElhinney. Watch this. Oh, Scott for Notts County. Did you see them? All right, so Ryan Reynolds, who was going wild in the stands, joked that he was going to hug Foster so hard he'd break his ribs. I can't say that on morning TV, a little beat there. Uh, that day put Wrexham three points ahead in the title chase and a possible promotion into League Two, the next tier of the English soccer system. That is a really big deal. Love Ryan Reynolds' face during yeah. that. All right. Thanks for joining us, everyone. We'll see you tomorrow. Make sure you stay tuned for CNN's News Central. Starts right after this break. That is it for this episode of CNN This Morning. You can check out our lineup of podcasts and showcasts at CNN.com slash audio or in your favorite podcast app. Thanks for listening. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.